You may be seated. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4. If you are visiting with us and maybe aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed this text for you on page 9 of your worship guide. Um, as you're turning there, you would have noticed as you came in this morning that we've got a table set up uh, for Compassion International. We have, as a church, supported a couple of Compassion children uh, for a long time. Um, it's been part of our giving. Um, if you would like to pick up a Compassion child and begin to support them, there are some out here on the table. So stop by the table. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Compassion, you can even just grab some information um, about Compassion as a ministry. Uh, we believe in it um, and are very thankful for what they are doing um, worldwide uh, with children who need help, um, need sponsors, um, and, uh, and the way they connect that with the heart of Revelation chapter 4, um, starting with verse 1. This is God's word. After this, I looked... And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them, with all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. This is God's word. Would you ask, would you join with me as we ask his blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. God, you have ushered us into the throne of grace and given us this vision of the present activity that we join with this morning. And this is our, that from your throne, your spirit would lead us into all truth. 
that we would leave here not only experiencing your grace and power, but experiencing it in such a way that we are transformed by it, given repentance by it, given comfort by it, given encouragement by it, maybe some for the first time given faith in Jesus by it. Lord, we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you're joining with us, we've been studying the book of Revelation. And if you've ever sat through a sermon series on the book of Revelation, my guess is that you've gotten through the first three chapters, and that's probably it. Chapter four begins the transition to the rest of the book, and it is the more difficult part of the book. And here, John begins the rest of the book of Revelation by being given a vision of heaven. And Mark alluded to this earlier. Children, heaven isn't the place you go where you die. Heaven is the place where God presently dwells. It's, it's less about timeline and more about the reality. It's the place where God on his throne sits. And in some mysterious way, when we gather for worship, we are, we are transported into that place by faith, not by sight. And you see, at this point, John is given this vision to bring comfort to people who are experiencing a great deal of turmoil. But I want you to see, and this is really want us to go today, that God's intention is to comfort his people through fear. Not through fear in life, but by bringing comfort by increasing their fear. Comfort through fear seems so strange of an approach to comfort. But perhaps it's helpful for us to see it this way. I think that fear is the strongest emotion that we experience. For instance, fear can overcome joy in an instant. Fear can disrupt the sweetest of days and sometimes comes without warning. Fear can be triggered by a sound or a scent. Us have in a low-level hum of our lives a fear of fear. Fear is perhaps the strongest emotion that we have because we have been built with a great capacity for fear. There's room in our lives, for instance, for a lot of little fears to stack up on top of each other. Fears can cohabit along with each other quite nicely. Lots of little fears can sit in the room of our heart without pushing each other out. There's room to fear our kids getting hurt and losing our job at the same time. There's fear, there's room in our hearts to fear getting sick and a tree falling on us at the same time. These little fears do quite a nice job of cohabiting our hearts at the same time. Here's what John's going to do for us, or what the Lord God Almighty through John is going to do for us. They convince us that there is one fear that is so great that it silences every other fear in its presence or in his presence. Because all of these little fears, what they're attempting to do is become the ultimate our lives by threatening loss. They're seeking the throne of our hearts. They're attempting to rule over us by threatening loss. They're attempting to gain kingship. 
And that's why these little fears can rule us so deeply. They can compel us to action. They can keep us from action. But God alone can sit on the one throne that rules over all things because his throne alone is whom all blessings flow. And so John is given a vision by God the Holy Spirit of a throne and one seated on the throne. And he is so beautiful in appearance that he is beyond description. When we sang those strange words, ineffably sublime, I'm sure you guys have articulated that all week long this week. You know, that's just ineffably sublime. What those words mean is that it is so beautiful that he is beyond description. We can't put words to how sublime, how beautiful God is. And so John sees, and he, all he can do is heap phrases on, um, on uh, his description of God. He had the appearance of jasper and carnelian with a rainbow that looked like an emerald. He's just, he's just highlighting beautiful, precious stones. He's like, what I saw was just so beautiful that all he can do is say, there's this beautiful stone and this other beautiful stone and this beautiful stone. That's how beautiful God was. It, here's the principle that operates in our lives. You become, we become what we behold. Or maybe put it another way, what gets your gaze gets your heart. So think it's, it's no surprise that, that as we've reduced the world to a more manageable size through technology, that anxiety has only increased. At first, that seems ironic. Technology gives us a sense that we're able to manage the world around us. And as a result, our fears or anxieties should decrease. But we have more info, more access to medical information, more access to news, more access to information, more access to politics, more access to ideas. We can hold all of that information in the palm of our hands and they are at immediate disposal, and yet we are more unsettled than at any other time in history and more than any other culture around the world because we need something better, some better who cannot be managed. Because the true antidote to fear is not a more manageable world, but a more fearful God who sits on his throne. See, the problem is not fear itself. The problem is that you fear something that's too small to bear the weight of your fear. Here's a good example of this, just to illustrate this one more time. I think this is a bit of a strange way to think about the world. It's not normally how we think about fear. But let me give you an example of this. Jesus is in a boat with his disciples and a large storm comes up. It's overwhelming the boat. The wind, the waves are thrashing the boat. The storm is overwhelming the boat. The water is getting in. The disciples are afraid and they should be. And they look in the back of the boat and Jesus has got his head on a pillow and he's asleep. And they wake him up and they say, don't you know what's going on? And he wakes up and he looks at the storm. He says two words, peace, be still. And it shuts down. Great, calm results. Shalom. The world is at peace. 
want you to keep this in your mind because this theme is going to come up in a second again, where raging sea turns into peace before God. And do you know what happens next for the disciples? It's not no fear. Because again, we were made for fear. The absence of fear is just not possible, nor is it healthy. Because Jesus, in this instance, replaces the fear of the storm with the greater brings true peace. Mark 4, verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to themselves, Who then is this, that even the wind and the seas obey him? And so here's what John is doing in Revelation 4 and what he's going to do again next week in Revelation chapter 5. He's going to give us an anchoring vision that is going to look. Here in Revelation 4, the anchoring vision is God the Father who sits on the throne. Revelation 5, it's God the Son who's been given the reign over all things. And that vision is given to us by God the Holy Spirit who comes from that throne. Verse 6, before that throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We saw this back in Revelation chapter 1. These chapters are meant to set the tone. They're meant to set the scene for the rest of the book. Think of them as the theme music or the anchoring scene or the controlling scene for the rest of the book. And it starts this way. Behold, a door standing open to heaven. And I heard a voice and it said, come up here. Let me show you what must take place after this. After this isn't so much a marker of time in the book of Revelation. Actually, in John's gospel, either it's not so much this came next. It's a marker of scenes. Imagine, parents, your children, your child is telling you a dream that they had, and they say, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. And it's not so much this was sequentially happening. It's like I've had these vivid images, and then this is the next one that came, and this is the next one that came place, you don't mind in that moment, you're like, this isn't chronological. This is just the next scene that they saw. And the next scene in Revelation is this. You're not getting so much a history or chronology, but a setting of scenes that's meant to give us a lens, spark our imagination so that we can see the world more properly. And after this... When John does that, he's saying, now I'm going to take you to the most ultimate scene. And this scene, this one after this, this scene should anchor reality for you. That's a controlling vision. God ruling over all things. And as a result, he is the one who alone is bringing all things together towards the end of Good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The point for the rest of the book, Jesus has won and he's going to win and his people are going to win with him. He's going to bring them all into his new creation because he alone is the one capable of handling that kind of weight in our lives. In fact, the word throne is used over 47 times in the book of Revelation. 17 of those are in these two 
In fact, from here and through the end of the book of Revelation, there are only four chapters that don't center around some scene of a throne. But this is interesting. John tells us less about God and more about those things that are going on around his throne. In fact, all he has to say about what he sees about God who sits on his throne is in verse 3, Jasper Carnelian. I guarantee there's nobody in this room who has any idea what those two look like, and that's part of the point. And then there's a rainbow, and you're like, ah, I got a picture of that, but this rainbow had the appearance of an emerald. And you see what John is doing, or what the Spirit is doing through John, is John, he's giving to us a vision of a God that is so simply, who is so simply profound, ineffably sublime, so beautiful that he is awe-inducing, need-dropping, and beyond description. You simply cannot encompass this God with any description. And so the Spirit says, but let me show you who this God is by showing you what is going on around his throne. And the Spirit doesn't bring God down to size and tell us the little things that you fear are, don't worry about those. He says, puts these inside by giving us such a vision for God by showing us the things that are going on around this God's throne, that he is too vast to be comprehended. He is too awesome to be treated lightly. He is too fearful to not trust. It's slightly difficult to seem to describe because there's just so much going on. And that, I think, is by intent. God cannot be easily described. I can tell you what a piece of paper is. It's flat, perhaps white, maybe another different color. You can write on it. End of description. It's manageable. You can put it in your hand. It's easy to grasp, not the God who reigns in heaven. And so the Spirit reveals to John a number of things about the God who reigns by giving us sights and sounds and creatures. And that's where we're going to go. These are all gathered around his throne. The sights and sounds first. Surrounding his throne was a rainbow. There's God on his throne, and surrounding that was the rainbow. And here's why God is invoking for John a vision of who he is at his core by taking us all the way back to what he had done in Noah. Because in Noah, God gave the rainbow as a sign. And in Noah, God did two things simultaneously. He judged the evil of the world and saved for himself a people by giving them safe passage through judgment. And that's who this God is. He's the God who judges and saves. In fact, that's where the rest of this book is going to go. God saving through Jesus through his own judgment. He's going to bring his people safely through his judgment on the evil of this world and safely into the new creation. That's the first thing that he sees. But then around that were fierce, the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. Children, how many of you 
climb into your parents' bed at night when you're awakened by a storm. It's fearful. It's scary because you can't control it. The storm is bigger than you. I mean, how many, how many of us have boldly said, yeah, I'm not wearing a mask. When it's my time, it's my time. But when the tornado sirens go off, we're going down to the basement. And the threat of the storm is like no other. It's ferocious and awe-inspiring at the same time. You want to flee and stare. You feel so small and helpless because you can't control the storm. In fact, how many of us joke and say, I, I, want to, I would love to be a, a, a weatherman. You know, you can predict all day long. You can't get it right. Nobody really cares. You cannot not only control it, you can't predict it. And from the throne, there comes peals of lightning and thunder. It's fierce. And then next, verse 6, sights and sounds. And before the throne, there were... There was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now here you have to get out of your mind what we think of your drinking glass. It's clear. Clear glass wasn't invented until much, much, much later in history. John didn't have a reference for clear glass. In fact, this was glass at the time was opaque. The word that he uses gives us the sense. In fact, sometimes it's even translated as frost. What John probably saw was something like a flat piece of quartz. But why a sea of glass? And why did it look like quartz? And here you have to remember that the ancient Israelites were not a seafaring people. They were a landlocked people. They really never had access to true ports and never really had a navy of their own. For them, the sea was a terrifying and threatening place. It was the place of chaos and danger. For the Israelites, the storm literally rose out of the sea and came into the land to bring destruction. And so the sea became a metaphor for the Israelites of chaos and evil and the unpredictability of life, a reference for all the things that they feared. Even today, that's the case. You can go out on water and it's pleasant until a storm erupts. And if you've ever been in the storm on the water, you will remember your utter helplessness. And remember, there is a storm erupting from the throne, but under it, a sea of glass that subdued chaos and evil and all of the threats leveled in a serene state under the God from whom the storms come. And now the creatures, there's, and now the creatures. We are in essence working our way out from the throne of God, which sits at the center of all things. That's what John is seeing. He's seeing all these ancillary things that are going on in the world around us are happening because God sits on his throne and nothing can topple that. And so from the throne emanates, grows all things. Now, John takes an interlude and he describes the 24 elders, but the real vision is a throne and then rainbows and then seven lamps of fire under it all a sea of glass. And the next thing he sees are four living creatures. Now, 
is probably the weirdest part of the vision. Because all four of these living creatures at the end of verse 6 are acting as guardians of God's throne. They're all angelic creatures called cherubim. Now, children, don't think of angels as these cute little chubby babies with wings and harps that, you know, are, are cute and end up in a Hallmark store, not in the throne room of God. In fact, that's never the vision. These are the cherubim. They are the warriors and guardians of God's throne. And as a result, they are fearful creatures with eyes all around, behind, before, all over them, symbolizing their knowledge of the world. They see things. They're keeping guard over God's purposes. They're acutely aware of his plan and purposes and ready to guard those purposes so that God's plan is executed exactly as he who sits on his throne intends for it to be accomplished. Nothing is unseen by them. Nothing can squeak by the Lord of all the earth. There's no rogue Adam in this world, not even a hair falls from your head without God executing it according to plan. No one has ever taken a seat in political government that has not done so because the Lord intended it to be. No nation has risen or fallen. No hardship has come into your life except for the Lord who sits on his throne, plans, and he's executing it by the cherubim who see all things. And there are four living creatures. Because in Revelation, the number four symbolizes the entirety of creation. They're like the four points of the compass. These cherubim keep watch over the whole world. And these four creatures are different. One's like a lion, the second like an ox, the third like a living creature, like a man, and the fourth like the eagles in flight. And they symbolize the great creatures of the world, the lion, the fiercest of the beasts, the ox, the strongest of the domesticated animals, the eagle, the king of the sky, and then one like the face of a man, the head of all created things. God is working his plan out over all creation, all four corners of the world. The kings of the animals and the beasts are under his dominion. And if you saw these cherubim, they would strike you as so fearful and awe inducing that you would immediately fall down before them in utter terror. But they fall before the Lord God of life. Verse 8, living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then further out from the cherubim who are guarding the throne of God are thrones. Another set of thrones with 24 crowned elders on them. And they symbolize the redeemed people that Jesus has won for himself. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of the troop, the church, but they're one group because they are one people and they're seated on clothed in white with crowns on their head because they had conquered not by their own strength but by the blood of the lamb who was slain for the sins of God's people because the blood of Jesus washes away 
all of our filth. They are clothed in white robes, glorious in the presence of God. See, our best works, we're told, are nothing but filthy rags. All the good that you have ever done presence of a God who sits in glory and the cherubim fall down before him. All the best works are but filthy rags before him. But these are clothed in white because they're clothed with the works of Jesus and presented before that throne, holy, blameless, and free from accusation. This is why we're told that in Jesus, this throne with boldness and confidence. And notice this. The fear of the Lord is not diminished, but has grown as a result of being clothed with the garments of Jesus Christ and giving access, boldness and confident access to to present, to go before that throne, to see the king seated. That's our father. He's ruling all things. We belong to him. But the fear is not diminished. It's grown. Verse 9, whenever the cherubim give glory and honor to God, the 24 elders fall down. And they cast their crowns before the throne. And they sing, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. You see, fear amplifies. That's how it functions. When we fear the created things, it amplifies our weakness, our helplessness. But when in Christ we fear the living God who reigns and redeems, it amplifies our love. Michael Reeves quotes the Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Spurgeon says this. It's not because we're afraid of God, but because we delight in him that we fear before him. And until this becomes to us the true fear of God, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we not really grasp the heart of the beat of God in the gospel. And then Reeves goes on himself. The, not to the flip side to our love of God. True fear of God is true love for God. Because it is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of his grace and glory. Or maybe better said, his glory magnified by his grace or manifested by his grace, so that the one we fear is the one who redeems us by his power. And you see, the great rest of heaven is the Lord himself who defeats all his and our enemies. And when we see that experience, that's what I mean by see, experience that that the great fear of the Lord is the one who is greater than any of the threats in our lives, is the one who loves us and is seated on the throne. He is the God of all, because he is the great one. The one who is to be feared is the one who loves his people and has saved us by his great power. Let's pray.
Lord, as we come to your table, is fitting for us to marvel that the God who saves is the God who reigns. And we are your children who get to sit at your table. What great privilege and great joy this is. And this is what we would ask. By the power of the same Spirit on this vision, work in us, taking these ordinary elements and using them to the extraordinary end of causing us to feast on Christ, slain for our sins. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.